You may be seated. Such authority, I feel, when I tell you that and everybody just sits nicely. In youth ministry, I tell the kids each week to have a seat, and then I see how many times I can get them to stand back up and sit back down before they start to rebel against my leadership. <laughs> it's turned into quite the joke, but so I thank you for sitting nicely. That was nice. Um, thank you for having me. My name is Brad. I came and joined you all a few months ago, maybe. It was a joy to be here. Thank you for, for allowing me to come again. Thank you to Pastor Luke. Um, we had the opportunity to have uh, Ethan and Amanda over for dinner a few weeks ago. It was a joy to have them, and, and uh, I think they're doing such a wonderful job. And I was just thinking yesterday, I, it's, I don't think it's any coincidence that RUF begins at the University of Illinois, and then all of a sudden, the University of Illinois football team gets a nine overtime win, thriller win, setting an NCAA. That's got to be a, that's got to be the Lord's doing, right? It shows that He is blessing the ministry. Well, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter four, verses one through sixteen. A little bit longer of a, a reading. But before I read it uh, out loud and, and ask you all to follow along, I'll just give a little bit, of, um, little bit of background info and an intro, and then we'll dig into the text together. So this is a pretty popular text. It's all about the unity of the people of God, how we're being united through Christ's work on the cross. So we're going to talk about two particular things today, the cause and effect, the cause of our unity and the effect of our unity in Christ. So just a little bit of background about the book of Ephesians. The city of Ephesus, you may know this, was actually going through um, a, a dramatic response to the message of Jesus. There was, a, there was a thrilling revival happening at the time. It was happening in their midst. Acts chapter 19 records the whole thing. In your own study, you may want to turn and read that this week and see and connect it to the scripture in Ephesians that we're learning from today. Paul's traveling around from town to town and he comes to Ephesus where he finds some believers who are there ready to be, be trained and taught more about the, the message of Christ. But he quickly realizes that, that what had happened was they were converted by John the Baptist's ministry and John had told them to wait, wait for the one who would follow, the one who was to come and that's Jesus Christ. But the, but the faithful people in Ephesus, they hadn't had the opportunity to hear about Jesus yet. And so Paul tells them all about Jesus, and then the, he baptizes them. And the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit came down in power, in dramatic fashion, and transformed just a small number of them at first. And they started this church. And then for two years, Paul, uh, Paul begins preaching the gospel all around the, the area, and performing miracles, and the miracles were so powerful, it says in Acts chapter 19, that even handkerchiefs and aprons that, that Paul had touched, his hands had touched, they were taken to the sick so that they could be healed. This is, this is insane stuff that we don't often see in our modern context. There were evil spirits that were being cast out, and the name of Jesus carried weight in that community. It says that a number of people who were practicing the magic arts, they brought all their books out to be burned even. They estimated the worth to be about 50,000 pieces of silver, or if you translate that into today's money, at least a couple million dollars worth of books 
were being burned in the city. This was dramatic, dramatic revival, and it went on for a couple of years. Lives were being changed. People were turning. They were repenting. Their sins were being repented of. They were turning back to Christ, and now they're looking for guidance to how to, how to live and how to follow God. Now, when Paul writes this particular letter to the church, the church had been growing in Ephesus, and, and he writes this as a general letter. It's not a specific letter looking back and dealing with a particular issue that was going on in the church. It's a general letter. It doesn't have any specific issues in mind. He's teaching about theology and godly living. It, it's a letter that was likely passed around from church to church to help guide them and instruct them on how to run the church and how to go about all these other theological issues that they might be dealing with. And now, and why, why would that be important to mention? Here's why I think this is important. It's because the principles that we read in this letter, they become the foundational theology on what the earliest Christian churches would have believed about God and his working in this world. And so, and so they're, they're foundational in setting up the churches and giving them a common set of beliefs and a common set of practices. In other words, letters like this one, they, they, they worked to help maintain the unity among the early churches. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, unity in the church, the cause and effect of unity. Chapters 1 through 3, when you read through the book of Ephesians, they're all about the theology that we are unified around. Ephesians is split into two main sections. One through three are all about the theology, outlining truths about how to understand God and what he's choosing to do in the world. It's wonderful, it's rich, it's very, it's very moving when you read it. Then chapters four to six is this transition on how to put that beautiful theology into practice, how to live out the Christian life. And so chapter four that we're studying today is that transition point. It's the point of the letter where it flips, it switches from theology to practice. And this is the point where we see the transition from Christian doctrine into Christian duty. Different people have called this different things. If you read some commentaries or people like to talk about these things, you could say chapter four is where we move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. It's where we turn from what is true and we learn what to do or from promises to practices, another way to put it. No matter what you call it, though, the vital thing that we have to understand as we read through the book of Ephesians is this, that always in the Bible, always, I know using hyperbole is kind of a no-no, but this is true. Whenever you read the scripture, always in the Bible, you will find that whenever instructions are given on how to live the Christian life, there's always a reason why, a theological reason why. God does not give us instructions without a purpose. So the truth about, what, about God and what he's doing is always the driving force behind how we live. It's never the other way around. We don't live a certain way in order to earn God's favor. We live that certain way because, precisely because, God already shows us favor through his son Jesus Christ. Our theology drives our behavior. We don't have the we don't get to shape our theology around our preferences, in other words. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 
and we are under the authority of the scripture. And so, so our calling is to work hard to understand what God is teaching us through his word. That's our calling as Christians. And so Paul starts chapter four with this famous transition word. We see it all the time in the letters that he writes, the word therefore. And now, you know, all, this is the old saying that every youth pastor loves to say in, with their kids is when you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? That's right. You guys have heard that before, I'm sure. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that, that after you read all the foundational doctrines of chapters 1 through 3, therefore it ought to motivate you to live like he's about to explain to us in the rest of his letter. And so here's the main gist of what he's teaching us, that there actually is a cause and effect of our unity. He's saying that the work of Jesus Christ reveals to us that our unity in the church comes from one place, and that's the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read through our text today, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians, and I want you to, to listen for this mention of the triune God and how he's the cause of our unity. So follow along with me if you would, and after I finish, I'll pray for us and we'll continue learning from the scriptures together. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave us, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and, the, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this scripture that we just read and all that you have to teach us would bind us together as the people of God, that we would learn, that we would learn from your word that we have a cause and effect of our unity under your son Jesus Christ, the headship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, reflected to us in the triune God. And I pray that we would be changed and molded and drawn together as the people of God so that we can be sent on mission to change the world for your glory, not our own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's talk about cause and effect of our unity. So remember, Paul's transitioning here from chapter, in chapter 4, talking about theological principles that are important for us to understand, to now talking about how we put them into practice. So here's the, here's the bottom line. If you are a follower of Christ here this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, then you are being called by God to live in a particular way. And so what is that particular way that Paul lays out for us here in chapter 4? That's the question we're going to try to answer. So look back at verse 1 with me. This is what it says. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is important language here because he's describing the Christian life using this metaphor of walking. He describes it as a walk. There's a direction to it. There's movement involved, in other words. You don't just sit around like you're relaxing on a beach. You're actually headed somewhere. In fact, this is true whether you're a Christian here this morning or you have not trusted Christ yet and you're just interested. This is true of all of life. In fact, it, it's, it's inevitable. Life is always moving forward. In life, you're always headed somewhere. He actually uses this imagery of walking seven different times in the book of Ephesians. The first two are here, are, are earlier in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 10. It's a very famous passage also. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's the summary of what he's saying. You'll probably recognize this passage. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says that you were dead in your trespasses in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. He's saying that, that we are all dead men and women walking around, following the temptations of this world and the desires of our own sinful flesh. This, this sinful world will provide a path to walk, and the path leads to death. That's what he says at the beginning in Ephesians 2. I remember there was a movie uh, that came out when I was in high school called The Green Mile. You guys have heard of this movie? Seen this movie? Probably many of you. I remember watching that movie when I was in high school for the first time, and I, I heard, it was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase, dead man walking. You would think I would have heard it before that, but I didn't know what it meant. I, I heard that, and it, the, it comes, he was, the reason it came to mind as I watched the movie was that this lead character's name, his name is uh, James Coffey, he was this enormous but imposing, or enormous and imposing but, but a gentleman, and he was falsely accused of murder. And when, when he's brought into the prison, he's led, he's led out of the truck, and the truck kind of makes this huge thud as he gets out, and they, they shoot the scene with his head off the top of the film, so you can't even see how big he is, just to show the, the sheer size of this man. And he's led by this arrogant, small little prison guard, and this guy kind of, he kind of takes, takes this strange sort of pride from hitting James with his baton and yelling over and over, dead man walking! We've got a dead man here, dead man walking. It's a phrase I learned that day that's used to describe someone on death row. Someone who's headed to certain death and nothing can stop it. So, so even as they walk around seemingly alive, they're as good as dead and there's nothing they can do about it. And Paul's saying that that's exactly how we are. Sure, sure you may be walking around in this world, but spiritually we are dead men and women walking. Before we come to Christ, we are dead in our sins, and we follow the worldly ways of living. That's what he's teaching us at the beginning of Ephesians. But then he goes on to say, in that same passage in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, later on, this is what he goes on to say. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, 
brought us back to life along with his son, Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus was brought back to life physically, we are brought back to life spiritually. That's what he's trying to teach us. And then in verses 8 through 10, he shows this contrast between being spiritually dead and then spiritually alive in Christ. And he uses this imagery of walking again. He says in verse 10, By grace you have been saved through faith, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. And so we have these two images of walking. The first way is walking in death as you follow the course that this world has to offer. And the second is walking in grace through the work of Jesus Christ. See, we're not stagnant. Either way, you are walking somewhere. It's not as if our choice is, uh, choices are to stand still forever. That's not one of the choices that he gives us. There is no neutral state in this life. Our two choices are to walk towards death or walk towards life. And when you are joined together with Christ on God's mission in this world, then the path is laid out before us. And that's what he's teaching us here in Ephesians 4. So look back to chapter 4 with me. He, Paul's using this imagery of walking again. He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called. So what does the path marked out for us by Christ look like? It's a path that's defined in verse 2 by things like, like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. And then Paul says that as we walk in humility, gentleness, and patience, we're doing so in a particular way. We're doing so within a community. Let's read verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Paul's saying this, that when you are in Christ, when you are on this journey, walking with God, you are not walking alone. And that's vital for us to remember. Not only do you have God but you have each other. We are united. We have what Paul calls in verse 3 a unity of the Spirit. This, this next part, I'm going to try to explain a little bit what I learned. Hopefully you can follow my scattered thoughts as I try to, try to work through explaining. As I was reading from this text and learning from it, reading commentaries and things, this is what, this is what I learned. I'm going to try to relay it. I'm not very good at this, but I'm going to do my best. So look at verse 3 with me again. He uses this important word maintain in there. He says that we ought to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I thought, I thought that was an interesting word. So I looked it up in the original Greek. I'm not, no, just fair warning, I'm not proficient in the original Greek. But occasionally I put my nerd hat on and I look things up so that I can understand them better. And this is what I found. The word that we translate maintain means something like to be keeping. It's a verb used in a the, in the present active tense. It has this sense of something ongoing, something continuing, but it's something that already has existed, but being continued on in an active way, okay? And here's, the, here's why this is important. It's because, it's because this, this means that the unity that we're called to with one another is not something that we actually create. It's created for us. It doesn't begin with us. He doesn't say create the unity of the Spirit. He says maintain the unity of the Spirit. So if we aren't the ones who create our unity, then what is the cause of our unity? What is the cause of it? Well, he explains it in the next few verses. It's the work of the triune God. This is good news. 
I'm going to read it again, just this small section. I want you to look for the references to the Trinity. I can just imagine Paul trying to write this passage. I imagine he was just on a roll and he was just so excited. Every time I read this, I think, what is going on in his brain? He's just, he's just writing down as fast as he could, or maybe he has somebody writing for him and they're just, their hand is moving so fast saying, slow down, Paul. Right? He, he probably couldn't even keep up with his brain. Look at verse 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and through all. It's such a beautiful statement about our unity. It sums it up so poetically. This last summer at our, um, our annual denominational meeting called General Assembly, I'm sure you guys know about that, one of the days we were in between sessions and I went to use the restroom and everybody had flocked in to use the restroom at the same time. <laughs> there was a huge line of guys waiting because uh, all but one of the urinals was out of order. And so there's all these guys just waiting. And the first guy in line, he went to the bathroom, he turned around, he saw this huge line of guys waiting behind him and he just shrugged and he goes, whoa, one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one urinal. <laughs> and he just walked out. We're all chuckling. That's not really important to the message. I just thought I'd share that funny story. But Paul uses this beautiful poetic paragraph to talk about the cause of our unity. And it comes from being in God's family. And Paul's reference to the triune God in here, I'm sure you heard it. He says, one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. One Lord, that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then one God and Father of all. Paul's actually using some, some really clever language here when he writes this, because in the, the, the Greek word that we translate unity um, actually has the same root as the word one, but with a different suffix. So the word unity would actually literally be translated oneness. So he's saying that our, our oneness that we experience with one another is actually caused by the oneness that comes through our one God existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now all that work, trying to think through the text, it may not be all that exciting to you. But here's why I think it's important that we work this stuff out and we think about it together. It's because there, there are so many things in our lives, so many things in our world, that have the potential to cause division. And I think that makes our job of maintaining unity increasingly harder every day. If we don't ground ourselves in the foundational truth that our triune God is the firm and steady cause of our unity, we will grow weary of, and of trying to maintain something that is increasingly difficult for us to maintain in human standards. Just think about, for a minute, the weight of what's going on in our culture. <laughs> Stuff I'm sure each of you have thought deep and hard about. Division is easy, but unity is hard. And I'm not just talking about disagreements. I'm talking about real division. A few weeks ago, as I, I, was, I was thinking about this idea, studying this passage, and I was trying to come up with a list of all the things that I could think of that would cause division amongst the people of God. And so real quickly, I put a post on Facebook. I'm not very active on Facebook, but I put this post on. It's probably my first post in months. And I just wrote this. I wrote, anyone want to help me out with the sermon? Ephesians 4 calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
What are some things that cause division between us? I just asked that question. And like I said, I'm not popular on social media, but I, I think this might have been my biggest social media post ever. <laughs> people are just eager to tell us all the things that divide us. Some of the people posted lighthearted stuff like Cubs versus Cardinals, which we know the answer to, of course. Go Cubs. Anybody? No? Yep. Coke versus Pepsi, deep dish versus thin crust, stuff like that, right? Of course, they're joking, but it brought up a good point about the difference between what disagreements are and true division is. The difference between unity and uniformity of thought. And as I thought about this more and more, I was helped by some of the comments on the Facebook post. I, I picture it like this. I picture some kind of a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, you have all these lighthearted disagreements about sports teams or preferred foods or things that we can laugh and joke about and be friends about. And then the spectrum continues on to more important things like, like parenting styles or schooling choices, other things like that. And then at the far end, you would have things that we, should be, that we would be willing to break peace over, maybe, maybe even rightly so, to divide over. Certain things. There's a spectrum all the way over to things we could divide over. The question then, as we think about this spectrum, is which things belong in which category along that spectrum? And how far are we willing to place things on that line? Which things are we willing to coexist with one another within the body of Christ? And which things are we willing to divide over? That's a, that's a deep question. It's a, it's a terribly difficult issue to deal with, particularly in the church. Like, for example, in our current culture, we have all the things that you can, you can probably picture all the things I might mention. Politics, wearing masks or not wearing masks, vaccines or not getting a vaccine, all that kind of stuff. Is a disagreement about these things worth breaking fellowship over? Is it worth dividing over? Or, or are we able to maintain unity with one another in the midst of disagreements? Some would say, yes, it's worth dividing over. Some of you in this room might say that. Some might take a hard stance and they say, something is so wrong that I'm willing to break fellowship and leave a church over. And others would say, no, we can still maintain unity and peace as we submit to one another, even though we don't have uniformity of thought. But even on that, we can't agree. In other words, Christians often can't even agree on what we're allowed to disagree on and maintain unity with one another. And just because we're all in the same room on a Sunday morning, it doesn't necessarily mean we particularly have true unity. Because I would bet that if, if we look around the room, many of us could probably identify people that we harbor ill will towards. We judge and condemn in our hearts, even if we don't speak it out loud. We look down because we think we've figured everything out and we're the ones with all the information. And that may not seem like outright division, but it, true, it certainly isn't true unity. And it certainly is not what Paul has in mind here when he calls us to be eager to maintain the unity that comes through the spirit of, and the bond of peace. Now I realize something as I'm saying all this stuff. I realize that I am not your pastor week in and week out. I don't interact with you all day in and day out. So maybe, maybe I've got this totally wrong. That's certainly possible. 
Maybe you all have figured out how to do this really, really well, and I would be thrilled to hear that. And if so, I would ask that you please write a manual on how other churches can do this. <laughs> My guess is, though, is that you've gone through all the same things that the rest of us have gone through. All the different churches are dealing with this, no matter where you fall in a political spectrum. And the reality is that we have to admit, we have to be willing to admit that sometimes Christians are often known more for their divisive attitudes than we are known for our unity. Not always, not in every case, but oftentimes that's what happens. And we could spend all day here talking about all the things that we disagree on. We could have heated arguments and discussions, but, but are we going to allow those things to divide us, or are we going to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace like Paul's describing here? Are we going to walk in humility, gentleness, and peace with one another? Because in the midst of all the division that we see around us, I personally, I don't see any way forward except for the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is it. And that is actually something that does cause unity amongst us. And that's the most wonderful news of all, that we're not the ones responsible for causing that unity. That's God's job. How does he do it? How does he cause the unity amongst us? He does it by wiping away all the sinful reasons that we might have to be divided with, our, with one another in the first place. Because our sin doesn't actually just cause us to be divided amongst ourselves. It causes us to be divided from God himself. In our natural state, we're separated from the triune God. We cannot obtain a unity with God. In fact, we cannot, we cannot even be in his holy and perfect presence because of the sin that divides us from him. Because the penalty of our divisive sin is, is eternal separation from God. But God did not want that division to stand in between him and us. He loved us with such a passion that he came down to earth in order to reunite us with himself. See, we're the cause of our division with God. And we are the cause of our division with one another. But God is the cause of our unity. He does it first by drawing us to himself through his son Jesus Christ, then because of our union with Christ, he unites us to one another. So if you are united with Christ, if you follow the logic, if you are united first with Christ, then this is what happens. He takes your sin, he buries it in the grave, and along with that, he washes away the penalty of separation from God for eternity, and then he rose from the dead leaving our divisive sin behind us in the ground, and he unites us to the Father by advocating for us. See, Jesus, Jesus did have perfect union with God the Father. Jesus never sinned like we did, and therefore he never had to be separated from the Father. But he went to the cross, and he endured that separation willingly. It was the most excruciating thing that anyone could have ever experienced. That is the God of the universe in the flesh, in our midst. And he put to death, and, and he was put to death on a cross so that we could experience what he already knew was the most wonderful thing that anyone could ever experience on this side of heaven. So only Jesus can bring us together in unity. He unifies the people of God for a common purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our calling then here in this passage is to simply maintain the unity 
that already exists because our triune God is the cause of our unity. God the Father calls us to himself. God the Son paid the penalty for our divisive sin. And God the Spirit works in our hearts to apply that unifying work of Christ to us. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So whether we like it or not, we're in this together. You cannot divorce yourself from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're linking arms and saying, let's go forward together as the people of God. That's our calling. So together we are progressing deeper into the heart of God and transforming culture for God's kingdom. So let's walk together in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's talk about the second part of this for a minute. What's the effect of our unity? The cause of the effect of, of our unity is the triune God. The effect of our unity then, that's what we're going to talk about next. Well, there, I see three uh, there are three aspects that I see in this passage. Paul gives us a description of what this unity ought to bring about in the way we treat one another. He's clearly saying it right at the beginning here. So the first effect of our unity is that we're equipped. We're equipped. We're equipped to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as we talked about at the very beginning. And Paul tells us exactly how this should look. We're called to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. This is important. These are the indicators that Paul gives us to examine ourselves. And so we ask ourselves this question. If I am united to my brothers and sisters in Christ, am I living in humility? Am I living in displaying gentleness? Am I, am I harsh with others? Am I a patient person or am I quick to judge in my heart? Am I bearing with one another those around me in love, or am I quick to abandon my brothers and sisters in Christ? When I read this passage here in Ephesians chapter 4, I can't help but feel like this is sort of a wake-up call for me. Paul's urging, urging me as the reader to consider that your unity, your oneness with one another is more important than my opinion, politics, preferences, or whatever. Because the things that are dear to God's heart actually transcend this world. They transcend this moment in time. Paul's urging the reader to consider that your unity, your oneness with us is what is vital. With, with one another is what's vital. So the effect of our unity is that we are, we are equipped to walk in humility, gentleness, and patience with one another. That's our calling. Because that's precisely what Christ did for us. He humbled himself and he went to a cross He's gentle with the contrite sinner. He's patient with us in our slow path towards repentance. And he bears with us in our shortcomings out of love. The second effect, we'll move, the, we'll move through these kind of quickly. The second effect of our unity is that Jesus gives us gifts. And here's where I see this in the passage. And so far we've been looking at verses 1 through 6 where Paul spends time talking about our group identity, our collective oneness with one another. Now look at verse 7 and 8. He kind of switches his focus. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So verses 1 through 6 talk about the unity of all believers. Then in verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us individually. 
So he's talking about the impact of Christ's work on our sense of corporate responsibility and on each one of us individual on our identity. It's both individual and corporate. How does, he, how does, how, how does each one of us individually, how do we experience the grace of Jesus Christ in order to be brought into the community, into the people of God. That's what Paul's addressing. You can't just attend church, in other words, and assume that you are in God's community. Just like you can't show up at some random family reunion and assume you're in that family. I used to buy t-shirts. I have a t-shirt collection. I used to buy t-shirts all the time. Every weird t-shirt I could find, I have totes of them, a couple totes full in my attic that my wife begs me to get rid of. But in college, I found this T-shirt that I would wear all the time. <clears throat> it had a picture of a bunch of people that I didn't know. And it said, Jones Family Reunion, 1998. My last name is not Jones, in case you were wondering. And I would wear it all the time. My brother thought it was hilarious. But just because I wore that shirt doesn't mean that I was a part of Jones, the Jones family. If you want to experience the oneness that comes with being in God's family, then you must be individually adopted into God's family. Look at verse 9. He, say, he says this, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I'm not going to get into all the theological perspectives on whether or not he actually descended into hell or if that means he just came down to earth. That's not really the point that I'm going to try to make today, except to say this. Jesus did really come down from heaven. He left heaven. He descended down to earth in order to do his saving work on behalf of sinners. He came down, he battled against sin and death, and he conquered his enemy through a sacrificial act of love on the cross. And then he was raised, not only from death back into life, but he was raised back up to heaven again to sit at the right hand of God the Father and intercede for us. He ascended back up into heaven to reign above all things, and in fact, that's where he's seated right now. And when he ascended into heaven, he sent back his Holy Spirit back down to us to guide us, to convict us, to convict us of our sin, to call us to repentance, and to be our helper. And so look at verse 11. What did he leave behind to do the work of ministry? Leaders. I thought it was so appropriate that Brian prayed in the context of leadership earlier in the service. I was so thankful that he did that because it's exactly what I was going to mention to you all in this sermon. He gave the church the gift of leaders. He mentions here in particular apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Leaders in the church he's saying, are meant to lead the way in humility, gentleness, patience, helping the people of God maintain the unity that we're called to in Christ. And they're a gift from Jesus to the church. I mean, this makes sense, right? Growing Christians grow in their faith under good leadership. That's what tends to happen. Christians are challenged by sermons that they listen to. They're challenged to repent of their sins when they're ex exposed by those sermons. They're built up, Christians are built up by good books that they read. We find fellowship in Bible studies and small groups with one another. Christians are encouraged and find healing in the counseling that they receive. They feel loved when a meal is brought to their home during difficult times or when a baby's born. They feel cared for when they're visited in the hospital. 
Their children are brought up learning the word in Sunday school classes. And all these things require leadership. And so leaders help build up the body of Christ, but only when they do so in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. And then the, the result, when that happens, is then the third effect of our unity that I see in the passage here. And we'll finish up with this. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, there's a maturity that, that's expected when we experience unity with one another. There's a growing in maturity. We're supposed to grow up into mature adulthood, is what Paul says. We're supposed to put away childish things. We're supposed to change and mold and grow into the likeness of Christ. Something about being united to one another in Christ is supposed to make us stop acting like children and stop fighting over all the disagreements that shouldn't actually cause divisions among us. And we can maturely have differences of opinions without assuming the worst about one another. And then the result is in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The body of Christ, the people of God, are supposed to be providing a place where we can grow and be built up together in love. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the effect of our unity when we're working together properly. I'll finish with this story. Charles Octavius Booth. I don't know if you know that name. He's an African-American pastor in the late 1800s. He was, uh, he was born as a slave, and he converted to Christianity after the Civil War. He was baptized in 1866 and then became a pastor in 1888. During his time as a pastor, one of the things that he's best known for is he saw a need for deep theological convictions to be made accessible to everyday people because most of the people that he was pastoring never had an opportunity to be educated. So he wrote a book. It's called Plain Theology for Plain People. It's the kind of book that's perfect for people like me. And this is what he writes about the need for unity amongst believers. He says this, The very nature of the case that makes it both needful and natural for believers to unite themselves in the church. They are of one family, of one mind, of one spirit, and of one hope. The word, the flesh, and the devil are, are against them all alike. Hence, oneness of spirit, of character, and of purpose show not only the possibility of union, sympathy, and cooperation, but also the need for these Christian values. By unity, the saints are strengthened, comforted, instructed, and edified. Think about this. This is a man who had every reason to remain divided from other believers and of, uh, to, from other followers of Christ, other believers in Christ. He had every reason to stay divided from them because he had been born and raised in a system of chattel slavery. 
Yet he was willing to write about the deep need for unity that can only come in the person of Jesus Christ. He was known for creating unity amongst white and black believers of the time. We need each other to grow in unity. There's a reason that Paul exhorts us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And we have to search it out. The triune God draws us together by drawing us to Christ. We're walking together deeper into the heart of God. And we grow in maturity when we do that. And when we go deeper and deeper into God's heart, we learn more intensely the need for our unity and our bond between one another. That's what brings, brings life to the community. We're not designed to walk alone. When we walk together in unity, we put, on, we put the glory of our triune God on display for the world to see. And I'm going to finish by reading again a psalm that was read earlier in the service. It's such a beautiful picture. Psalm 133. It's short. It's a psalm of ascent. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For the Lord, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have blessed us with your scriptures. We thank you that you have drawn us together in unity as the body of Christ. We pray that you would remind us that you, your work, your work through the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the reason, the cause of our unity, that we are called to maintain it and, in, and benefit from it and be blessed by it. And the effect is that we would grow up to mature adulthood, putting on display the glory of our triune God. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.